supercontinents, tiny black holes, and water older than the sun. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer questions about science, faith, and life. This week, you can go to sandboxcooperative.com on September 27th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. I'm going to be doing a live webcast with Q&A with the Sandbox Cooperative. Again, that's sandboxcooperative.com. I'll see you there, but for now, let's get it started. Hey, Science Mike. My name's Carly, and I go to a very conservative Christian high school, and my science teacher loves Answers in Genesis. He sends us there about once a week to read an article, and this week our article was called Noah's Lost World. And this was basically just their theory about how idea of a supercontinent or multiple supercontinents could fit with a literal reading of the flood. And they say that uh, when God created the earth in the first chapter of Genesis— that it was in the form of a supercontinent called Rodinia, which then broke apart during the flood and crashed back together, temporarily forming a supercontinent called Pangaea. And Pangaea was only in that form for the duration of the flood. And as the land dried, the parts separated and have settled where we know them today. And I have never heard of this theory of Rodinia before. I've heard of Pangaea, but I just don't have any idea if it's credible if there's any scientific evidence. They cite some fossil records and stuff, but, I mean, I'm not really sure about that. And so I was just wondering if you had ever heard of this and if you had any thoughts about it and if you could clear any of it up for me. Thanks. Hi, Carly. Uh, Wow, a little nervous to answer your questions uh, because I don't get a lot of questions on the show from high school students at conservative Christian high schools that subscribe to the scientific theories of Answers in Genesis. Uh, And any experience I have with Answers in Genesis is mainly them writing about how I'm a terrible influence on Christianity. (laughs) So let's go ahead and, and start with an understanding that the people at your school and maybe even your parents would not like my answer. And to do your own research, don't just take what I have to say and accept it any more than you're just taking what your school has to say and accept it. But but apply a critical lens, look for flaws in my reasoning, flaws in theirs, gather your own evidence. And uh, I want to admonish you for um, seeking out other perspectives. That's really cool. And I hope that this podcast doesn't end up in a school board meeting or local news. <laughs> so interestingly enough, Rodinia does exist or did exist. That's a real thing in science. Pangaea, of course, is a supercontinent everyone is aware of. Pangaea is a time when most of the land masses on Earth, other than small islands, were all on a single large landmass, which we call Pangaea. And uh, Rodinia was much earlier, a couple hundred million years earlier than Pangaea. Now, what's interesting is when you go that far back in time to Rodinia, uh, there was no land-based life. So it's difficult to use the fossil record 
to talk about, you know, plate tectonics in that era. But what's interesting because of plate tectonics, now we all understand, and if we don't, here's a quick review, because the earth has a hot molten core, our, our core is a uh, hot and energetic because of decaying radioactive matter and then you have a, a molten core and then you have these solid plates on the surface of the earth they kind of float and glide along these these currents of magma and, and energetic material the surface configuration of the earth is constantly changing okay now this uh, happens very slowly tectonic plates move generally between 10 and 40 millimeters per year with these bursts or sprints of up to 160 millimeters now that that's similar to the dimensions of like an iPhone 6 plus <laughs> so like when a continent a continent is just flying it travels the distance of the height of of an iPhone 6 Plus screen in a year, and typically a small fraction of that, okay? So these are changes that take a very long time. But when you look at the Earth's history, um, interestingly enough, there's even been global floods before. I know people who listen to the show know that I don't accept Noah's flood, but I do accept that the Earth was completely covered in water before there was any land-based life, not just non-human life, there was no land-based life whatsoever, and in its earliest configurations, really no life at all. Now, the Earth started out as, as kind of a ball of lava and fire. It was a hellish place, and then uh, it's been a water world at some point since development. It's been a snowball a few times, just completely frozen everywhere, typically when supercontinents break up. And these geological formations, what led to Pangaea and led to where we are today, started about 4 billion years ago with Cratons. These were you know, proto-continents or, or proto-tectonic plates. Um, and then about 3.5 billion years ago, two of them connected, and you got Valbara, which was the first supercontinent, but it is only a supercontinent because it was the only one. It was no competition. It was much smaller than even a modern continent. And then time went on, we got to Ur. That was more of a proto-continent. And then 2.7 billion years ago, you got to Kennerland, which its breakup caused what we believe was the first snowball Earth. 1.8 billion years ago, you had Columbia. Now, those are all relatively speculative in geology. Now, some geologists accept those theories, but this is all newer, cutting-edge stuff. 550 million years ago is Rodinia, and that's where we get very certain about geological history. Now, there may have been a continent, although I've probably murdered all these pronunciations, I'll definitely murder this one, Panodia, that may have come between Rodinia and Pangaea. Either way, it also predated land-based life. So Pangaea is the first supercontinent that stuff lived on, if that makes any sense. Now, because the plates still move and they still shift, about 250 million years from now, we should get another supercontinent. We have this constant cycle of supercontinents merging and breaking apart and merging and breaking apart. And we're just in the middle of that cycle right now. Now, this obviously differs from what your science teacher and answers in Genesis say. And they say that, you know, we're taking uh, man's word over God's word, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's a whole epistemological discussion I'm not going to get into other than I say that uh, the evidence God left behind from God's creative work should speak authoritatively to God's actions. I have trouble conceiving of a God 
who deceives us by crafting the earth in one way and and then leaving forensic evidence that that contradicts that, but leaves divine texts that explain it. That's a weird God. Um, now, the other thing is the, the idea that plate tectonics somehow accelerates because of a flood is nonsense. We know what plate tectonics do when flooded because the oceans are doing it right now. On the scale of a plate, a flood doesn't turn a continental plate into mud, right? Water doesn't penetrate down that much. Different types of bedrocks aren't even permeable at all. So oceans aren't playing this huge role, and certainly not a global flood, wouldn't suddenly allow plate tectonics to happen dramatically faster. The physics just don't allow for it. Where is that energy coming from? I'd like to see the equations. So you've been given some good information. Rodinia is a very well-understood science in geology, as is Pangaea, as is plate tectonics, and even as is a global flood, Four billion years ago, <laughs> long before any vertebrates or even complex life. If anything, we had simple microbial life at that portion of the Earth's history. But again, don't take my word for it. If you'd like to get uh, a geologist's take on the flood and tectonics, check out The Rocks Don't Lie. I'll have a link to that. Uh, it's a book. I'll have a link to it in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hi, Science Mike. Thank you for your podcast and work. It has influenced much about the way I think about the relationship between science and faith. This is a two-part question. I was recently forwarded an article about NASA confirming that there will be 15 days of darkness on Earth in November due to an astronomical event between Jupiter, Uranus, and the Sun. See link below. I'm doubtful about the legitimacy of this because I think it would make bigger headlines than a small article. However, if this is possible, what is the science behind it? Also, many Christians believe that God worked through evolution to create life. If that is the case, is it possible that God would work through scientific and astronomical events to fulfill some of the end-time prophecies? I listened to your podcast about blood moons, and I agree with you. I just have a hard time answering that question. Thanks. Okay, let's. there's three ways we're going to go with this, and we'll start with the most obvious. And there absolutely will be 15 days of darkness in November. You can bet on it. Um, NASA would confirm that if asked. So go ahead and plan on 15 days of darkness in November. Just as you can plan on 15 days of darkness in any 30-day month, because about half the time, the surface of the earth is cloaked in darkness. See what I did there? Uh, Every night, the earth goes completely dark. Now, of course, that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about 15, 24-hour periods of darkness, and that is not true. That's not happening. The link you sent me was to like a hoax satire site. There are sites on the internet that their whole existence is to exploit Poe's law. And Poe's law basically is that it is difficult to tell a parody from extremism from actual extremism. So they create sites that look like conservative or easily lampoonable audiences media and then release nonsense and see if it spreads. And very often it does. 
And they do this, it's actually pretty clever to say that an astronomical event between Jupiter, Uranus, and the sun will cause this darkness because people think of Jupiter and Uranus as these giant planets. In the news all the time, we hear about planets transiting past the sun. And so on the surface, that seems plausible. And here's what you have to think about. What causes night? It's the Earth rotating on its axis, so only half of the planet is facing the sun. Now, of course, because of that tilt and the orbit of the Earth, parts of the planet do experience extended daytimes and extended darkness, especially as you get closer and closer to the poles. But despite the fact that Jupiter and Uranus and Saturn and Neptune are all gas giants, they are all very far from the Earth and very far from the sun, And even if they passed between the Earth and the Sun, their shadow would be insignificant. We see what happens when Mercury or Venus, which are both much closer to the Sun and Earth than the gas giants, when they transit across the Sun, you have to have a special telescope to see it or even notice. Now, the Moon, uh, lunar eclipses can be dramatic, because it's so close to us that it can be a very similar apparent size in the sky as the sun and can cause a temporary darkness. Uh, But the outer planets, their orbits don't even transit between the sun and the earth at all because our orbit is contained inside of theirs. So you could be on Jupiter, although it doesn't have a surface, you could be orbiting Jupiter, I guess, and you could see the earth transit in front of the sun, but Jupiter won't transit in front of the sun from the perspective of Earth. Jupiter does get an opposition from the sun, and we can see it dramatically then, um, but that's because the opposite's happening. The Earth is between Jupiter and the sun when they're opposition, how that goes. Okay, so no, there's no 15 days. Now, your other question, could God, who has created life through evolution, could God use astronomical events to create the end times. Well, if God exists, if we assume there's a conscious being with unlimited power who's omnipotent, that God can do whatever God wants. God could use astronomical events. God could completely suspend the laws of physics. Uh, If that's a matter of your faith, believe as you will. I don't make judgments about what God could or could not do. I don't know enough about God or have any evidentiary uh, platform to make statements about God's capabilities or what God may or may not do. I simply follow God as part of a faith tradition called Christianity. Now, some Christians do believe in end times prophecies. If I start seeing prophecies from Revelation clearly revealed, we'll talk. Until then, uh, I'm going to do the Matthew 25 thing and love the least of these. Hi, Science Mike. It's John Trent. I have another question for you. This one involves a new study that came out that I read. It says, I believe, 2014, and I hadn't seen it until the other day. Basically saying that Earth, that water is actually older than the sun. It suggests that water came from the solar nebula or the so-called protoplanetary disk a cloud of dust and gas surrounding the forming sun. So was just wanting you to maybe speak a little bit more on on what you knew about that. 
and how viable it ended up being. I couldn't really find anything based off of my Google searches, and but I personally find it very intriguing in the sense of the creation story in Genesis, you know, kind of touches on the earth was without form and void and there was darkness and you know kind of the idea of it being space darkness and then god was hovering over the face of the waters and if the waters were in this solar nebula you know i i just find it really intriguing that you can you know kind of do the allegorical reading of creation and it it actually can make sense with you know the explanation of water being older than the sun because light hadn't been created according to you know the biblical narrative water was before the sun and the light so if it's older than the sun then that's pretty amazing to me so just your thoughts on that whole subject wanted to know what you think about it so thanks for all you do again and keep it up buddy Well, John, part of the reason that space exploration is so important is because it gives us the ability to understand our own origins. By looking at different parts of our solar system neighborhood, we're able to get a better picture of how the Earth was formed and what role the sun played in the creation of compounds in our solar system. Comets and other matter that originates further from the sun, farther out in the solar system, uh, are time capsules. They let us see the chemical composition of our our protoplanetary disk, this cloud, this nebula that existed before the sun was formed and as an accretion disk was forming. Sort of the way stellar nurseries work is you have clouds of uh, hydrogen and other dust that are moving chaotically. And because of the conservation of angular momentum, basically, if you added up the momentums of all the random motions of particles inside this cloud, you would get a value. Over time, through uh, atomic collisions and molecular collisions, that all evens out, and you get a spin, and you get this disk. And that's, that's kind of the birthplace of stars. That's how it happens. And the study you're talking about, they used computer modeling and samples of the Earth's water and comet water to look at ratios of deridium, which is an isotope of water. Basically, it's it's water with a, a different number of neutrons in its uh, corresponding nuclei, modeled to see if our solar system could have made all of its water from scratch. And it does not appear that it could. That's not all that surprising, because the only way that stars can create new elements is through the nuclear fusion that happens in their core, and stars can't make anything heavier than iron. That's the limit of nuclear fusion in a star, but when you have a supernova explosion with massive stars, much heavier elements than iron can be created and then spread across the cosmos in that process. Now, that lets us know that on a universal scale, at first, we didn't have heavy elements after the Big Bang. Uh, We just had basic elements. Stars formed had supernova explosions, and then you had the materials to create solar systems with planets and heavier elements and things like water. Now, water doesn't require super heavy elements. You don't need anything heavier than oxygen to create water. We see that water forms in interstellar space, and according to this research, 
lets us know that some percentage of the water in this solar system, probably a significant fraction, predate the birth of our sun. And then you get this very Genesis-like picture, I agree, that's beautiful, formless and void, hovering over the waters. Now, of course, most of the water in the universe is ice, because <laughs> it's very cold out there. And by the time our solar system was being born, the sky was full of stars, there had already been multiple generations of stellar births and deaths before our sun and its planets formed. But it, I do often find it interesting, at least interesting, for all of its talk of firmament and trees that predate stars, the ways that Genesis does make interesting metaphorical allusions to proper physics and cosmology. Uh, a formless and void environment with water does seem a lot like our stellar nursery. A universe created from nothing, ex nihilo, is also the current vogue in particle physics. Uh, Lawrence Krauss, a devout atheist, staunch atheist, wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing, wherein he describes the way that essentially a universe is almost mathematically inevitable in a state of quantum vacuum or nothingness. Now, some Philosophers pick bones with the word nothing there, but uh, <laughs> that is way out of my pay grade. That's why I'm not philosophy, Mike. But you, you're absolutely right. The study you read is correct. The Earth's water, much of it, does appear to predate the sun, as do all heavy elements in our solar system. They predate our sun, the, you know, the carbon in your body, all these elements. They were there before the sun was born. Now, Stellar ignition does cause a shockwave and, and reactions to travel through a solar system. So the sun did play a role in reconfiguring those pre-existing atoms. We understand through the work of Jeremy England, for example, that it's very plausible that the sun's radiation helped manipulate the materials on this planet from being just molecules sitting around to life. It was that energy source fueled by the sun and the surrounding bath that allowed it to disperse that may create a mathematical framework for life to emerge. To me, that's what I think about when I think about the spirit hovering over the waters, the degree to which creative potential is etched into the fabric of the universe, the way that gravity and electromagnetism work together to cause suns to form and accretion disks and planets, and then somehow through abiogenesis and natural selection, those raw materials begin to breathe and think and wonder and make creations with intent. Suddenly dust is formed into the image of God. Man, Genesis really is beautiful. Our last question came from the email inbox, and it's a short one. What is your opinion about CERN getting turned on soon? Do you think they can really open up a black hole? Wow. Man, I love the science-y questions this week. Um, they're, they're, they're my favorite, obviously. <laughs> Science Mike for a reason. CERN is the organization that runs the Large Hadron Collider. Now, the Large Hadron Collider is the biggest particle accelerator in human history. It's actually built on top of and incorporates the designs of earlier particle accelerations. And it accelerates protons, or large hadrons, to very high relativistic speeds. They get protons going 
near the speed of light, and then they bang them into each other. Now, interestingly enough, this device recently got a tune-up. It's been running at partial power for a long time. That partial power um, let us discover the Higgs boson, for example. But now we've got it fired up after some upgrades to its magnets. I'm not kidding you. Uh, after they upgraded its magnets, they're now ramping it up to full power for the first time. And there were some news articles, both at its original activation and this new activation, that is it possible that the Large Hadron Collider is going to create a black hole? Again, it is creating energy levels um, that are very high on the quantum scale. Uh, but let's let's have some real talk for a second. A proton moving through the Large Hadron Collider has about the same energy as a mosquito in flight. That dramatic pause was intentional. It's the energy level you're talking about. Now, that's that's impressive. A proton <laughs> is a tiny fraction of the mass of a mosquito. So the fact that we're putting that much momentum behind a proton, that it has that much energy, is truly impressive. Um, but when you take these two protons traveling in opposite directions and you bang them together, and it's really a stream of protons, you're creating energy levels that have never existed in human physics before. But you're not creating energy levels that don't exist, like in cosmic rays that bombard our atmosphere all the time. So that's why we aren't afraid of black holes being formed by the Large Hadron Collider. There are already more energetic events happening in the natural universe than this very sophisticated machine. Our goal with the Large Hadron Collider is to create, on very, very small scales, similar conditions to the beginning of the universe. Very high energy. You know, some theories, some speculative models say that those energy levels could create microscopic black holes. But here's the thing. A microscopic black hole would not be stable. It would evaporate very quickly through Hawking radiation. It would not be something that could then grow and, and gather mass and consume the Earth or anything like that. There is actually another idea that people worried about called strangelets which are where you get all the different kinds of quarks or, or, or three different types of quarks kind of hanging out together. And there were some concerns that strange matter would just make other strange matter. We've never seen that happen. There's also an idea in physics that the universe is not in its most stable configuration. And there was some concern that the Large Hadron Collider could create what's called a vacuum bubble, which would be really cool to be a more stable configuration of the universe. It's just we couldn't exist in it. Uh, so we wouldn't want a vacuum bubble to occur. But again, if any of these things were possible, cosmic rays would already be doing them. Cosmic rays are creating particle accelerator-like collisions constantly, even in our own solar system, even in the outer edges of our atmosphere. So no, I don't worry about black holes. I don't worry about the Large Hadron Collider destroying the universe. I do get excited about the Large Hadron Collider giving us a better picture of where the universe came from and a more complete understanding of reality at its most basic levels. Now, sadly, some of the most interesting ideas in theoretical physics today lie far beyond the energies of the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, a physicist once told me that to probe the levels of reality and experiment that we are probing with mathematics we would need a, a Large Hadron Collider whose 
loop was similar to a planetary orbit, uh, something far beyond human engineering. And so many of the ideas in theoretical physics are stuck in theoretical physics. We don't have a mechanism to test or probe them with experimental means. With the Large Hadron Collider, we're sort of exploring the standard model of physics, which is has been the accepted idea in quantum physics, though incomplete, for quite some time. Stuff we've been talking about since the 50s and the 60s even. Refined, certainly, but the, the fundamental ideas Richard Feynman talked about. So no, don't worry about black holes. Even if you know a microscopic black hole did form in the Large Hadron Collider, which is extraordinarily, extraordinarily, extraordinarily unlikely, that model may not even be valid. We understand that that would not be a stable thing anyway. It would uh, it would evaporate long before it could interact with any matter in a significant way. So don't worry, you're not going to be consumed by the Large Hadron Collider. I do want to let you know, if you want to lose sleep over black holes, we understand that there are rogue black holes that have been ejected from a mutual orbit with another black hole that are streaking through the universe at near relativistic speeds. Now, because of the size of the universe, the chances of them striking anything is very, 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 very incredibly low. Uh, But that would be one plausible way the Earth could be destroyed by a black hole. The good news is it would happen so fast, a black hole moving at high speeds colliding with the Earth, none of us would know anything happened. (laughs) We'd just be gone. (laughs) It'd be crazy. So, uh, and again, when I say worry about that, don't worry about that. The, The odds of that are so, so astronomical that it it won't happen, right? Statistically, it's a non-event. Uh, but it is more plausible than uh, being destroyed by the Large Hadron Collider. Well, that's another episode of Ask Science Mike. I know a lot of you really hang out for the pastoral and life questions, and we just did four really sciencey questions. Uh, I don't know. I loved it. Uh, if you were really bored that episode, I apologize. That, that that one was for me. I picked the questions this week, and I just picked four that really interested me. And I had a ton of fun. So if you fell asleep, wake up. Don't miss your subway stop. And I do have links with more explanations for everything we talked about on AskScienceMike.com. If you want to bone up on science, that's the way to do it. Listen, this week, lots of stuff going on. I'm going to be in New York on Saturday at the Global Citizen Festival. Uh, That is an event that talks about relieving poverty on a global scale. Uh, It's amazing work. If you're going to be at the Global Citizen Festival, it's huge. But if you see me, come say hello. I'd love to see you. And then, as I said at the top of the program, on Sunday, I will be at the Sandbox Cooperative at sandboxcooperative.com. That's in Rochester, Minnesota. If you're in Rochester, I'd love to see you at the event. But otherwise, it's streaming on the web. If you'd like to be part of a live Science Mike event, this is your chance. It'll be live streaming video. You can see the talk, and then you can ask questions in the Q&A. It'll be a mixture of in-person questions and internet questions. Uh, we've got Belong London with The Liturgist. If you go to theliturgist.com slash belong, Two weeks left to get early bird pricing, and then the price goes up. You don't want to miss that. 
Uh, also going to be at Storyline in Chicago. I'd uh, love to see you at Storyline. Lots of great speakers there. And talk about living a better story in your life. Of course, next year we're doing Ask Science Mike Live. We're doing a tour, multi-city. If you'd be interested in hosting that at your church or your college or your venue, I'd love to talk to you. Just go to my booking page, send a note to my booking manager, and we will get you on the list to be a part of Ask Science Mike Live. Now, we need your questions. Keep them coming. Uh, more people are starting to use the hashtag Ask Science Mike on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube. So I do check that. You can also put your questions right on AskScienceMike.com. You can send me a voicemail right on the website or type a message that's you know longer than a tweet, and I'll get it there. Now, Ask Science Mike does cost money to put in your ears. There's so many listeners that there's web hosting costs. There's obviously huge time costs. Uh, so my show is listener-supported. So if helping foster open, honest conversations about science faith is important to you, you can go to AskScienceMike.com, click on the Patreon link, and you can learn how you can donate every single dollar helps. I'm seeing lots and lots more people give it the $1 and $5 level, and that's what I'm looking for. I would much rather see, you know, with as many downloads as the show gets, I'd rather see hundreds or, or thousands of people giving a dollar than a few people having to give a lot more than that. Um, so if you've got a buck, five bucks a month, I would really appreciate it. Of course, the show's always going to be free, and you can change or cancel a pledge at any time. I have seen some of the people who uh, help get the show started who are giving at really very high monthly levels pull those donations back as more people are donating. I think that's great. I, <laughs> I don't want anybody to, to put themselves in financial hardship supporting the show there's enough listeners, nobody should have to. Greg Nordine is our producer. And Greg does a great job, and it is really thankless work. <laughs> so if you want to go to AskScienceMike.com and find uh, Greg's Twitter handle this week and send him a thanks for the work he does, I would appreciate it. The theme song is by Jeff Bodiford. He's an amazing musician. He can make music for you. There's a link in his Twitter profile on AskScienceMike.com as well. Thanks for listening, you guys, and we'll see you next week.